0: The first lesson is from Psalm 24, verses one through six. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second lesson is taken from 2 Timothy. We are reading from chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. Listen for the word of the Lord. Now you have observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering, the things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, Paul is writing. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But wicked people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that uh, that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we are not makers of history, it is through history that we are made. And today we continue our series in Discover the Joy. We have covered several areas and today we are focusing on our past that leads into the present of today and for future you have to come back next week. So let's start with 2 Timothy. These are what's known as the pastoral epistles. Paul is credited for writing these. Timothy and Titus both were being mentored by Paul in ministry, and they're called the pastoral epistles because they contain a lot of helpful information for how we order and structure church. It's the first time we hear about elders and deacons, it's the way and bishops and other ways to structure church. So Paul has gone from starting these home churches from scratch and building them up to giving them some insight about how to operate and maintain in a day-to-day fashion. And he's giving advice to Timothy and then to Titus on how they can now stand and go to the communities of faith that they are being called to under Paul's guidance. So in addition to 2 Timothy and um, the idea of how to structure an order church, also ideas for how to structure the household of faith, he also is working against false teachers that are, you, as you would think, as new faith and those who come in from former religions, those who have been previously converted, are continually trying to figure out how to be people of faith, because it's so early in the life of the Christian church and belief. So into this, Paul speaks to Timothy, and he says, remember Timothy, I, Paul, have done all of these things for you. I've lifted up God's steadfastness, Lifted up Jesus Christ. I've been persecuted. Expect that yourself, he says to Timothy. But then he said, You've learned all these things. Remember from whom you have learned them. Remember from whom you have learned these things. And certainly Paul would be his chief source, but we know that Timothy's mother was Jewish and Timothy's father was Greek. Therefore, Timothy has had this different perspective on both the Jewish now leading into Jewish Christians perspective and also those who are outside of the faith, the Gentile understanding of bringing Greeks in, uniquely gifted for outreach to that community. So I want you to think for a second. If Paul is telling Timothy to remember whom he has learned his faith from, I want you to think back through your life. Who was it that was one of the first, if not the first, to help bring you into faith? Was it parents, siblings, grandparents, children, cousins, a pastor, an educator, a church musician? There are so many who are placed in our path that could have affected our journey. Maybe it was way back when you were a child or maybe you just decided to give this a shot last week and you were here for the first time. Either way, I want you to take just a few seconds and identify one, if not a couple, of people who have been influential in your faith journey. As we remember these significant people, it is this day we celebrate Reformation Sunday. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But we also see the Sunday closest to November 1st as All Saints Day. These people who died in faith that went before us, we remember. It is many of them that either brought us to faith, kept us in faith and in some ways continue to be with us as we seek to be people of faith. Remembering from where we have come from and how we have been brought to this moment are important. As Dr. King said, it is history that makes us who we are, the experiences we've had, our family lineage, and as a congregation. We cannot know who we are and we cannot move forward until we know from where we have come. So let's take a quick journey and start back in the Bible. So, in Matthew 16, around the 16th verse, if you remember the conversation between Jesus and Peter, Jesus asks all his disciples, Who do they say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're this and that. Then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and says, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. Jesus almost gets excited and says, yes, Simon Peter, it is my Father that has revealed this to you, and because you have made this known, your name from now on will be Peter, which in Greek is rock, You are the rock on which I will build my church. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And the forces of evil shall never prevail against it. Wow. So a couple things just about that piece. Jesus initiates church. The church was not a man-made institution where a few people said, how do we create wealth, power, and status and create a false institution where we pretend like there's God and Jesus? Mm-mm. It was Christ who said, you, Peter, will be the beginning. You are the rock, Peter meaning rock. Our Roman Catholic friends trace uh, all of their what back to Peter? What? Popes, right. Peter is seen as the first pope in the lineage of our Roman Catholic friends' history, but all of our collective beginnings as church happened right here. All those jokes about going to the pearly gates and Peter is there um, with the keys letting you in and all those jokes about who's in and who's out come from this passage. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. But it starts There from there through the crucifixion, through the resurrection, and those who saw then were dispersed out, some local, some into the community, some into the world, to begin these fledgling home church meetings. Paul goes out in his missionary journeys to take it farther, and the church begins to a point Now, so we're probably 40, 50 AD, and from that time until 312 AD, the church is persecuted off and on. The church is not seen as a legitimate or a legal faith by the Roman government that has occupied it since before the time of Christ. To me, one of the logical reasons that I believe is that if this whole business about Jesus existing, being the Messiah had been made up, it never would have lasted through 300 years of persecution. Who is gonna stake their life, their family's life, their livelihood on a lie for no gain? Several generations from the time of Christ till we get to Constantine in 312, different degrees of persecution. Right away, if you remember the Emperor Nero who fiddled while Rome burned, there was this huge fire in Rome and Nero blamed it on the Christians which started persecution right then at that time, right after Christ. And then all the way toward the 300s, all the way up to 305, Diocletian persecuted the Christians terribly and in the worst way. So 305, and right next, in succeeding years, we get to Constantine. Constantine became Roman emperor, and before his battle in 312, the Battle of Milvian Bridge, he had a vision in which Christ spoke to him and said, if you mark the shields of your soldiers with this symbol, the cross, Or a Cairo, which are the first two letters in Greek of Christ. They're on the front of our font. They look like an X with a P going through it. That is X, the C, and P, the R, Cairo. Then you will be victorious in battle. He did and he was. So it was seen as this conversion that then the next year in 313 through the edict of Milan issued a statement of religious tolerance. So remember Diocletian right before Constantine, the Christians were at the worst of their persecuted history. And then Constantine comes and issues this edict of tolerance. So all the property that is seized can go back to their Christian holders. Persecution ends at that time. It doesn't yet become the state religion, but Constantine ends the persecution. Later, about 395, Theodosius, after Constantine dies, then makes Christianity the legal religion of the empire, and that's really when it takes root. So, for the t- sake of time, we will move quickly through the next several hundred years. Kingdoms rise and fall. Churches split, morph, get back together. In 1054, there's called they call the Great Schism. Any group of people that you're with generally that divides, you can call the Great Schism. But there are many great schisms that happen throughout time. This was one of them between the Church in the East and the Church in the West. And get this, they, they separated and fought over theology and politics. <laughs> Those fools. I'm so glad we're above all that. So what is now the Eastern Orthodox Church split off from what is now what became the Roman Catholic Church in the West. And the church remained faithful and remained even through the persecution, even through its establishment and continuing into the Middle Ages, the church remained faithful and remained. 1099 ish, the Crusades begin, some nine of them for the next hundred plus years. Horrible wars justified in the name of faith. But through it all, the church remained faithful and the church remained. Through the rise of Islam in the 600s into the 700s, becoming formidable in the 800s, the church remained faithful and the church remained. Fast forward to 1500s. Now, I love and we love our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, but it is also necessary to talk about how we split off at that point and became who we are. We're all one big Christian family, we are all one body of Christ, then and now. But at that time, there were some things that some people in Europe were having trouble with as it pertained to doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church. So what started as the Protestant Reformation, and you take those words, there's protest in that first word, And reform in the second. And that happened when we look at Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk in Wittenberg, Germany, decided that he wanted to raise up for conversation some things that, some issues, some doctrines that he had trouble with as it pertained to the Roman Catholic Church. Chief among them was. What is it? The most effective fundraiser in the history of church? Indulgences. Indulgences. Thank you. Right. Pope Leo X was looking to build St. Peter's Basilica, needed a new revenue stream. And so, to generalize this, you would pay a certain amount, they would give you a slip of paper, and it would hasten your entry into heaven. Now, they were dealing with the issue of purgatory, which was, if you weren't quite in heaven, you weren't bad enough for hell, you kind of hit purgatory, and I like that. There's a bit of grace to that. If you didn't get there, you can kind of work your way up or be prayed up or something on the nature. But Luther saw this as paying for salvation. There were other issues, such as access to Scripture. You think worship's hard to follow now? Imagine... I'm speaking Latin that you don't speak. Imagine you're reading Scripture in Latin that you don't read. You would be smart and pick things up, but still, Scripture was not for the people. You had to go through the priests to speak to God and to have access to God's Word. Luther said, I don't think that's the way this was meant to be. There are five solas, S-O-L-O-S, that... Luther lifted up that are the core to understanding the Reformation. That is, Scripture alone reveals God in Jesus Christ. You go straight to Scripture, you have access to it, you don't need other parties to tell you or to lead you through it. So, Scripture alone, grace alone, you cannot earn it, no matter how many works of merit that you do, no matter how many hours at the homeless shelter or the retirement home or serving those in need, you cannot log enough hours to earn your salvation because you do not earn it. It is a gift. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, we are justified by our faith, and that is a gift, our belief in Christ. Then Jesus Christ alone, Meaning again, we don't have to go through others, we don't go through priests, we don't pray through saints, we go directly to Jesus Christ. When we do our confession, you don't come up to me throughout the week, thank goodness, and tell me the ways that you have sinned, you go directly to Christ. And as a group, we go directly to Christ. And then finally the fifth, to God be God's glory alone. God's glory. So those five things really separated Luther, but he had no intent of setting off this reformation. He was a professor, he was in an academic environment, and it was fairly standard practice to put up things, let's think about this, let's have a forum, and let's debate them and discuss them. But because of what had already been begun around Europe and other places, the time was right. As they say in Esther, he was placed where he was for a time such as this. And so we see this October 31st, 1517, which is why the Sunday closest to Halloween is also always Reformation Sunday. We remember this past and this history. So one of the things that guaranteed Luther's success more than others who had tried in the past was the printing press. Mid-1400s, the printing press was created, and so by 1517, where others had failed because it stayed local to their little areas of Reformation and protest, they were able to make flyers, brochures, and scatter them and take them and carry them all over Europe. One of the single factors to the success of Luther and the Protestant Reformation. So after that, enter our church founding father, John Calvin. John Calvin was French. He was kicked out of France when he started to buck the church. This was about 1530, a little bit later than Luther. He went to Geneva, Switzerland, which would become a hub for the Reformation, but not yet, they kicked him out. He went back to France and was pastor of a church for exiled French Christians. Then they called him back to Geneva and said, okay, we're ready, come back. He did. He was a lawyer by trade, again French, redesigned their government structure, started schools, and started to reform church polity and a new liturgy that would become our Presbyterian history. While he's in Geneva, John Knox, Scotsman, comes from Scotland, He's been imprisoned by the French, he's been exiled, he's now an employee of England. He comes to Geneva and meets John Calvin. There they meet, they study, they talk. Knox takes back to Scotland some of these ideas from Calvin and the Church of Scotland is where the Presbyterian Church takes its roots. So when we celebrate our Presbyterian heritage, it is to Scotland that we celebrate. A lot of churches have tartans, a lot of churches on this Sunday do a kirkin of the tartan and all kinds of uh, celebrations and bagpipes we will get there. So how does it get to this country? Well, we have immigrants, Scotch-Irish immigrants that come around our American Revolution and begin to set the Presbyterian church that then grows west as the country grows. So again, fast-forwarding the church in the United States as it has throughout time, the Presbyterian church continued to grow, continued to split, continued to reunite throughout time over controversial issues of the day. As of late, slavery and integration, the role of women in uh, officer, uh, to be ordained officers and pastors, and then homosexuality and its role in the church also that we all know well. So there was the Northern Stream and the Southern Stream, and they came together in 1983 right here in this church to vote to form the PCUSA. The Northern Stream of the church, Southern Stream of the church. Came back together, 1983, here. Now it had to go back to all the presbyteries and be voted, but that event happened here. We're a part of history. That's pretty cool. So then from 83 on to the present, uh, the church has continued to split, to grow, to shrink, to rise in all of its different forms. I truly believe, as Christ told Peter, that hell will not prevail against it, the kingdom of heaven, against the church. I believe that there will always be a presence of the church here on earth until the second coming. It may look different. We may always be in a process of it's growing over here, it's not here, shifting here, shifting there. The church is a living thing. And today we are being reminded about our history that we have inherited such a rich past from those who have come forward, from those who kept the faith, who helped to make sure that the church remained faithful and remained. As I alluded to last week, when this church started in 1830, if that first generation said, you know what, we're just gonna keep our faith to ourselves, we're gonna keep it in this building, we would not be here today. Into the 1900s, the 1900s, 1950, all the way through, each successive generation, if they had said no, We're just going to do our own thing. Faith is for me. It's not for others. I don't really care about this church or the succeeding generation. We would not be here. But they remained faithful and the church remains. And that gets us to now. We are to look at our rich history from our saints that have gone before us and and taught us, because now is our time to claim our opportunity. Stewardship is not just this little box where we ask you for money. Stewardship is the way that we are disciples. It is the way that we say, in response to that hackneyed phrase, yes, Christianity is always one generation from extinction, but it is not going to happen on our watch. There is too much faith, there is too much joy that we are being called to share, to build, to grow, to celebrate, to be challenged by. If we say, well, faith is just for me, I'll keep it here, whatever happens to the church, whatever happens to the church, we will not pass on what we know as the joy in Jesus Christ By nature of being a disciple, we are teachers as well as we are learners all the way through this life. I ask you to think about those who brought you to faith. We now need to be those who bring others to faith. That doesn't mean we have to have it all figured out. It doesn't mean that we are holier than now or we have the Bible memorized, but it means that we have a sense of our calling, a sense that what we know in love is too important to let it be phased out and that is directly on our shoulders, and what a gift and a joy that it is. So as we move forward in our understanding of discovering the joy and how we will use the gifts that we have been given of time, talent, and finances, the question ends here. What will you leave as a faith legacy as individuals? And what will we leave as a faith legacy as First Presbyterian Church? Hallelujah. Amen.